This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. President Biden expected to announce tomorrow some new guidance on wearing masks outdoors for vaccinated people. That's coming from CNN. They are citing people familiar with the plan. We've also known that U.S. tourists who have been fully vaccinated will be allowed to travel to Europe this summer, more than a year after non-essential travel was shut down. That coming from the New York Times. At the same time, we are reminded that uh, we are far from being over globally uh, in our fight against COVID. India recording more than 352,000 new coronavirus cases, the fifth straight day of more than 300,000 infections as the COVID-19 crisis in that country continues to grow. So back with our daily check on COVID and great to have joining us once again is Dr. Elijah Day Williams. He's chief of staff of neurology at Columbia University Vagilos College of Physicians and Surgeons, an NIH funded researcher, a leading health disparities expert. His research is focused on community-based behavioral interventions. He's also the founder, president, and board chair of Hip Hop Public Health Check out their website. Uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, by the way, has provided a grant to Hip Hop Health. And Dr. Williams joining us uh, once again on the phone in New York City. How are you? Hi, great to be back with you. Nice to have you back. I feel like we, as a nation here in the United States, feel a lot of progress when it comes to getting the vaccine out and are looking ahead to maybe our world reopening more. But when you look at numbers from India and some other emerging areas of the world, you are reminded that we are far from out of COVID-19. How do you see it, Dr. Williams? Well, I'm, I, I kind of, I do have hope, but I also have uh, deep, deep concerns at the same time. It's, I'm kind of in this twilight place where, on the one hand, I, I see all the progress that has been made. And on the other hand, I'm concerned that, that we're not going to make it to the finish line unless we really, really come together and solve not only the disparities within this country, but also help other less developed countries. Because, you know, the truth of the matter is, um, you know, these, the, the virus is constantly mutating. Um, and the way it mutates is when it's given an opportunity to replicate in our bodies. And so if you have unvaccinated clusters either within, within our own communities or within a community outside of the world, it gives that, that is a scary scenario for, for us because that's where these variants emerge and potentially can come back and, and set us way, way back. I mean, that's the point, right? And so what are you hearing in terms of conversations or, or potentially global conversations about, I think we're, we're seeing it more about the importance of developed world, helping the developing world to make sure that we get vaccines out there. Are you hopeful? Are you hearing things that uh, we will be providing a much major assist and needed assist to the likes of India and elsewhere? I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think there are efforts, but I think that they're insufficient. And, um, you know, the challenge is, is, of course, we have to make sure that our own back backyards have been sufficiently back vaccinated. And, and we're still struggling with that, you know, in this country, you know, given, you know, the inequities that we have seen and the challenges that remain of getting everyone in this country vaccinated. You know, I think that we, are, we, we, we see, you know, the early adopters have come online. We see those folks that we knew were going to come on early have come online. 
Uh, now we're starting to be to see, you know, a situation where there's probably going to be uh, more vaccine available than people to be vaccinated. And so we still have a long way to go in this this country. But that said, I, I think this is part of the reasons why it's so challenging. The global issue is so challenging, especially when it relates uh, to lower income communities. Uh, and so, you know, I know that COVAX is trying to help and, and we see the WHO and all the, all the countries that have signed up to COVAX making these vaccines available globally. But quite frankly, I think these efforts are insufficient and I don't think that they are going to really dent Uh, the problems that those countries are facing. Well, and I'm glad you also brought up what's happening in our own backyard, because you're right, depending on the population, the demographic, the locale, the geography, some places around the country are doing better than others. Within the black community specifically, what are you seeing? Uh, Are you seeing more individuals want to get the vaccine, able to get the vaccine, have the access? Because, you know, we have seen those stories about millions of Americans, you know, skipping their second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. I think nearly 8% of those who got that initial Pfizer or Moderna are skipping out on the second one. But what are you seeing specifically within the black and minority communities? So what I'm seeing in in the black community is um, I've seen a tremendous progress. I've seen uh, the you know if if you were to ask me the same question, you actually might have asked me this question when we last spoke. Mm-hmm. I was deeply concerned that we weren't going to move the needle very quickly, but we actually have in the back community. We've seen a, a, a real jump in the number of people vaccinated, and we've seen overall vaccination coverage increase in the black community. But I want to say this: if you look deeper into these numbers, what you're seeing is almost a divergence within the black community, a split within the black community where a lot of the, the, the vaccine acceptance and a lot of the existing coverage is among older African-American populations, you know, those over the ages of 65. Uh, but the, the, as you go lower down that ladder of age, you start to see much more resistance, much more hesitancy, and greater challenges to vaccination. In fact, when we opened our own uh, vaccination center in West Harlem, mm-hmm. uh, we saw a real surge of, of people in the beginning uh, coming to get vaccinated. Uh, a lot of those were older African-American individuals, older people living in the neighborhood. Uh, and then the subsequent weeks passed, uh, we started actually uh, struggling to fill out wow. slots uh, because yeah. we, we're now you know, dealing with uh, you know, younger populations that really need to right. get vaccinated. Dr. Williams, one of the things I was thinking about, first of all, what level of reopening are you comfortable with? And I think about the EU saying, if you're vaccinated Americans, we're comfortable with you coming in. Uh, There's still debate about schools opening up. I'm seeing some schools, I'm seeing, you know, reopen completely, others waiting still till next September. What level of global reopening are you comfortable with right now? Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's going to be. I think it should be done on a region by region basis. Um, I think it should be done. It should be local decisions based on, uh, you know, the infection rates uh, based on vaccination coverage. Um, I think these are the these are the things that need to really feed uh, into the decision making. Um, just as, as an example, you know, there are many colleges now that are requiring, uh, you know, COVID vaccination before. Uh, you can return to campus, so you're going to see whole campuses now, uh, with you know, covered by you know, filled with vaccinated individuals. So I think these types of uh, these types of things 
uh, that we're seeing more and more in different communities uh, should really be driving these decisions in addition to obviously the infection rates. Does it make you though a little uncomfortable when EU says, okay, you can come in? Because, you know, we talk about this a lot. I think we probably talked about it with you as well that COVID doesn't know a border. And so if you're traveling, I mean, there are, I feel like there's a lot of gray area where things can kind of once again quickly get out of control. Yeah, I mean, I think we 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 uh, we do we do need to be careful, and we need to make sure we 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 really continue to maintain um, real vigilance on on, on these matters. Um, but we do also know that vaccinated individuals, um, you know, are really, uh, you know, are actually the the, the likelihood of uh, of them even transmitting the infection is 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 lower than an unvaccinated individuals. And, and we also know that, you know, certainly uh, with the ones that we have here in the United States, and uh, we know that they're highly protective against in, infection, hospitalization and death. So I'm actually I actually welcome the idea uh, of liberal, you know, of kind of liberalizing uh, the uh, you know access and, and opportunities for those who have been vaccinated. And I think this also provides incentives to those who haven't been vaccinated uh, to actually get vaccinated. Um, but while while that is said, I think it's also really, really important to continue to track uh, infection rates, uh, continue to do surveillance, COVID testing, um, and, and really continue to make sure that uh, we really monitor um, you know, when I went to Europe recently, I remember I had to take a va- I had to take a COVID test to get into London, and then I had to take a COVID test a couple of days after being in London, and then I had to take a COVID test to get on the plane to get back to America, and then I had to take a COVID test after I got back to America, uh, and I was only away for a few days. And so yeah. um, I, I, that level of that level of scrutiny, um, you know, while I think it's important to scale back, we also must make sure. We continue to do some surveillance testing. And test, so testing stays. It's funny that you say that because we've just got about 45 seconds left here, but we were having a conversation this morning about, well, wait, we're all getting our vaccines. Do we need to continue? We get weekly tested here uh, at Bloomberg. That's still an important thing. Well, I, I think that um, among the vaccinated, I think it's less important. Um, I think uh, certainly we still have a lot of unvaccinated uh, people around. Um, and I think it's really important to continue to make sure that um, we we at least at minimum continue to mm-hmm. uh, do surveillance testing, especially on the unvaccinated, because that's where the, yeah. the that, that's where these super mutators emerge. And that's where the danger to the rest of the public lies. All right. Can I leave it there? Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate you giving us time again. Dr. Olajide Williams, he's chief of staff of neurology at Columbia University. He's an NIH, NIH excuse me, funded researcher. He's also the founder, president and board chair of Hip Hop Public Health. Bloomberg Philanthropies, by the way, has provided a grant to Hip Hop Health and, of course, joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. In the current double issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, there is a story about the airline founder who is launching another new carrier, and he's doing it during the pandemic. Talk about timing. Let's get more on this story with Drake Bennett. He is projects and investigations reporter. He's on the phone in New York City, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Axis Line in Brooklyn. And Joel, the man behind it all is the man who created JetBlue. 
Yeah, his name is uh, David Nealon. He's been a serial airline entrepreneur. Um, this new one that he's got coming called Breeze will be his fifth airline. So that's pretty impressive, as I think Drake yeah. will, will, will tell us. The, the tarmacs are littered with failed attempts at getting off the ground once, let alone, you know, five times. Um, so, Drake, what has been uh, his guiding light in all of these launches? And and what does uh, what do we know about Breeze and what he's trying to do there? Um, well, uh, he has a long. I mean, the the airlines he's started have been budget airlines, and, and JetBlue was kind of you know his best known. And the idea there was to basically uh, create a budget airline that didn't feel like a budget airline. So, I mean, he's someone that you know early on in his career was obsessed with Southwest, um, and you know set out to, to create a, a Southwest-like airline, but one that didn't, you know, Southwest famously served only peanuts to people to kind of remind them of the peanuts they were paying for their fares. Um, and so with JetBlue, he's like, well, we'll put TVs in it, we'll have leather seats, the planes will be brand new, it'll kind of feel nicer. Um, and the other thing he did with JetBlue that was super smart was was use JFK. Um, it's weird to think about it, but New York City was actually an underserved uh, market for air travel um, until JetBlue came in. Uh, JFK was really only used for international travel, and it was basically a ghost town during the day. So he has a long history of being able to find these, you know, gaps in the market, even in places like a, a kind of a New York. Um, and Breeze is basically uh, uh, another budget carrier. Um, it, it's a little bit modeled on Allegiant um, insofar as they're not going to be flying every day. They're going to be you know, concentrating on those days of the week when uh, vacationers are more likely to travel. Um and they're going to be using slightly smaller planes than Southwest and Allegiant fly. So the, they, those guys fly like 737s or A320s. Um, uh, Breeze is going to be using slightly smaller planes, and they think that changes the math for them in the way that opens up kind of this whole tranche of smaller markets, um, especially once they get this new plane, the uh, Airbus A220, which which has really, really long range for such a small plane. So they'll be able to do what's called these long, thin routes, so from some sort of smaller city in the U.S. all the way to, you know, Hawaii, if they can find people who want to take that direct flight. So I think what's, what's super interesting about all of this was, like, obviously JetBlue came at a time, um, it actually, I, I had forgotten this, it launched uh, not too, that far ahead of 9-11, which obviously had yeah. significant implications for, for the travel industries and the airlines. Um, here we are with the pandemic and, you know, airline traffic has been greatly suppressed for the past year and, and potentially for for the business class traveler, perhaps permanently altered. Right. And, and so what what opportunities, if you can explain that a little bit more and sort of like what he sees Breeze being able to tap into here. I mean, you mentioned the budget stuff and the smaller airlines, but like where, yeah. where does he think the window of opportunity sort of lies? Well, right. I mean, as you pointed out, the real question is business travel. Um, and he's fortunate in that his, his sort of target uh, customer is not, a, not primarily a kind of a, someone on like a, who's, who's getting their tickets paid for by like a corporate travel department. Um, it's more kind of a vacationer or a visiting friends and relatives kind of traveler. Um, and in a sense, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a great time to be running an airline. There's an enormous <laughs> amount of uncertainty. Right. Uh, but there are ways that uh, he's, 
you know, there's been this kind of retrenchment. Of, you know, a lot of cities have just lost service. And so in a way, it kind of opens up some opportunities for for uh, for a for a breeze. Um, and also, you know, he doesn't he hasn't been trying to run an airline this whole year when everyone else was like hemorrhaging money and uh, basically trying to stay head above water. So, right. um, you know, th- there are ways in which his timing has, has been fortuitous. Well, you know, this is what's fun about your story, Drake, is yes, there's the business, very businessy story of he's doing is, you know, another airline. He has been so successful and kind of, you know, disrupting the airline industry. But what's really cool is you kind of get into who this guy is. And if you were going to bet on somebody to bring an airline during a pandemic <laughs> to the market, mm-hmm. I'd bet on David Nealman. Talk to us a little bit about your experience with him, because part of what was fun was he's got some pretty strong views on COVID. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a little bit of a COVID truther. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he really, um, you know, when we he met, he, he showed me the mask he wears. He, he's not a huge fan of masks. Um, and it, it sort of, it looks like a sort of normal black cloth mask, but then when he took it off, which he immediately did once we sat down at a conference table, he showed me that it's basically made of like mosquito mesh. So it's not really a functioning mask in any sense of the word. So um, he's, you know, for the past year, he's been pretty vocal um, about kind of what he sees as the sort of overreaction to COVID that, you know, the sort of medical epidemiological establishment has, has, has sort of um, presented. And so he, you know, and it, I think it's linked the way it kind of it, it's linked to his attitude about risk is the attitude about risk that you would expect from someone who multiple times has launched these extremely complicated endeavors that are unlikely to succeed. He sort of keeps doing this. And so I think it sort of shapes the way he feels about the risks of getting this disease and the way we should kind of um, as a society think about that. And I think also you know, it's it's a more unvarnished and, um, well, it's extremely unvarnished version of what you hear more establishment figures in the airline industry saying, like, it's safe to travel. We should be getting back out there. He takes it to kind of a, a almost fringy extreme, but it, it's not a, something that's, that's foreign to folks in the travel industry. Jake, I'm wondering, you know, there's sort of like a kernel of, of like business management um guru that this guy represents and i'm wondering like of all the people that you talk to what are what are the takeaways what what why has why has david nealman's uh airline success um why has he been so successful again and again and again and drake you got to be quick about 25 seconds well i mean a lot this is someone who who worked for him for a while who's now the ceo of azul uh, another of david's really successful carriers has basically described him as being like a, an eight-year-old who's a genius and so there's a way in which he's He's able to he he oversimplifies things in a way that can be frustrating for people who work for him, but it also allows them to see certain kinds of possibilities that are outside the kind of received wisdom. Well, and what's fun too is, and I forgot Herb Kelleher of uh, Southwest, legendary in the industry. I forgot that he had fired Nealman. Uh, it's a great read, and it's in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Drake and uh, Joel, thank you so much. One of the companies that we've been talking about a lot in the newsroom today is Apple, uh, coming out and saying it's in, is increasing its U.S. investments by 20% over the next five years, allocating $430 billion to develop next-generation silicon and uh, also spur 5G wireless innovation across nine U.S. states. 
that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. So let's get more on what's up at Apple. Bloomberg News U.S. Technology Team co-leader Molly Schutz is with us on the phone in New York City. Molly, nice to have you here. Apple shares, by the way, just up a little bit, up about a half a percent. But we're going to hear from that company later on this week when it comes to uh, earnings. Um, tell us about this news. Put it in perspective. Is this new? Are we surprised? Is that a lot of money? Uh, what does it say about kind of Apple in the United States specifically? Right, Carol. Yeah, as you said, it's a lot of money, um, but Apple has a lot of money, and <laughs> Apple's you know only been making more money um, every year, basically. Um, this is you know Apple. Uh, they they have basically a five year spending plan, and the last time they made an announcement like this was back in 2018, when they announced 350 billion dollars of investment in the U.S. And saying that at that point that they were going to create uh, 20,000 new jobs also over the next five years. So this is kind of an update. To that, and it's true. This is gonna, this is you know now 430 billion dollars. So that's a 20 percent increase over their last spending plan. But in the meantime, you know Apple shares have you know grown exponentially, and the company is now worth more than two trillion dollars. So it's sort of keeping in line with that. But still, it is a lot of money and a lot of jobs, and you know they're spreading it around. They're they're coming clearly out of you know the West Coast. Silicon Valley, and they're they're spreading out this this wealth around because there's a lot of different parts of the country that have other things to offer. In particular, they're they're putting a billion dollars down in, in North Carolina to build a new big uh, research center there that's going to really have a lot of engineering and artificial intelligence types of jobs located there in that uh, research triangle. Well, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Because there's so much going on there. What is it? Is it? Hmm. Were they, they, this is what they do. As you said, they do these five-year plans. How much is a little bit of a, a PR move as well, you know, against the backdrop of a president and an administration who is looking to raise corporate taxes? Yeah, sure. I mean, probably this has been, you know, in the works for a long time before President Biden announced the latest, you know, new tax plan that's going to, you know, really crack down on companies that hide a lot of their offshore profits, you know, or a lot of their profits in, in, in overseas, like Apple and many of the other tech companies does. I mean, that, that law certainly is going to close some of the loopholes that uh, the companies were able to exploit under President Trump, and they will have to be paying more taxes, and, and it certainly encourages them to bring things back to the U.S. But again, probably this was probably in the works a little bit before Biden's latest announcement, and, you know, Apple does want to, to bring things back to the U.S., um, so it's a, probably a little bit of both. Well, and that's a good point, Molly, because I do feel like in terms of some of the conversations we've been having with CEOs, they are thinking, especially after the pandemic, increasingly thinking about their supply chain, where it is. And just in general, it feels like over the last few years, people have been thinking about having their supply chains closer to where they are selling. Yeah. I mean, Apple, you know, they they have a huge and well-developed supply chain in China and and in Asia generally. And while they can't bring all of that back to the U.S., you know, as Trump was hoping and had mm-hmm. pushed them to do, they certainly can't do all that. They have a huge, massive organization over there with Foxconn in particular and in Taiwan as well. But they are increasingly, you know, there is a lot of the development, maybe not the manufacturing, but a lot of the development. And like we said, the research that goes into that is a lot of that, you know, can be found here in the U.S. Like we said, the research triangle in the Raleigh-Durham area has been building up for years. They've got a lot of, um, you know, really high-tech companies there, including GlaxoSmithKline, IBM's there with Red Hat. Um, One of Apple's new kind of nemesis, Epic Games, is also based there. 
so there's, uh, you know, a big concentration of tech there. Austin, Texas, another big place where you've got Tesla, Facebook, Alphabet. They're all putting more staff and more, uh, you know, bigger offices in, in cities like that. Boston has long attracted a lot of tech talent as well. We're seeing it spread around a little bit more here. So I'm thinking, Molly, when the company reports earnings this week, Apple does, uh, it'll do it on the 28th, so they'll do it on Wednesday. Is there a question you would want to put to Tim Cook and company when it comes to this announcement and this news? And I, and I do wonder about it coming out here on this Monday ahead of earnings. Yeah, I mean, I guess what, you know, people will want to know is, yeah, how, how much, you know, are can we how much of this can you really put in the US and really you know high paying jobs not just you know which it seems like what they're doing engineering type jobs but you know really putting make it made in America by Apple sort of is you know what I think a lot of people are hoping that they do a little bit more of and also a big thing for Apple too is the environmental impact you know they are working towards being more carbon neutral and have certainly done a lot of that already in the U.S., but it's going to be a bigger question for them as more people gobble up iPhones, tablets, or uh, iPads, Macs. You know, Apple really is under a lot of pressure to make that as, as clean and environmentally friendly as possible. All right, good stuff. Thank you so much. You just kind of spelled it out so well for us. Uh, Molly Schutz, she is Bloomberg News U.S. Technology Team co-leader. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Ryan Jacob is back with us. He's Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, and Portfolio Manager at Jacob Asset Management. The Jacob Internet Fund, by the way, continuing to be just about all of its peers over the past five years. It's in the 96th percentile, according to Bloomberg data, and uh, looks like it's returning, I think, 37% on average annually, but I'll check that number. Uh, anyway, great to have Ryan back with us. He joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. Ryan, nice to have you here. How are you? Good, good, good. Glad to be here. Well, listen, it's a big week for big tech. Uh, give me an idea if there are any companies in particular that are on your radar this week. Uh, well, for us, we have Google reporting tomorrow night, which is a, a mid-sized position for us. And we're expecting a continued rebound uh, in the results uh, as uh, we go through this reopening. And, uh, you know, it really, it, it's going to accelerate as the week goes on, the number of our, our holdings that will be reporting. All right, so let's talk about it in terms of positioning here. Remind us, you know, how often are you adjusting positions based on either some fundamental news or some bets that you see in the sector? Uh, well, we are making adjustments pretty rapidly. I mean, mm -hmm. the market has been uh, fairly volatile lately. Um, you know, this is an important earnings season. Uh, there are a lot of companies in our sector that are just doing outstandingly well. The question is, uh, you know, will it continue as uh, we kind of get past COVID and that huge bump in demand and pull forward that we saw last year? Well, so then, so give me an idea. Like Twitter is a name that's going to report on Thursday. Stock's up about 23% this year. Have you been adding to your position? Have you been pulling back because it has been gaining? Or, or give us a little bit of a take on that one. 
So Twitter um, actually has, has done better uh, mm-hmm. as we've seen more advertising spending. But with Twitter in particular, and we have been adding to the position, it's one of our larger holdings, um, what they've really done is clean up the platform uh, tremendously well. And that's, that's engaged more advertisers. They're wanting to spend more money on the platform. Uh, they've just done a terrific job kind of right-sizing and, uh, you know, again, cleaning up and really making their platform more efficient through COVID. So they're going to come out of this period, we think, in a really strong position. What about something like Square? Well, Square is, is really kind of a, a two, two-dimensional situation in that they have, obviously, the, uh, the payment services through small businesses that clearly is going to see an uptick as the year progresses. Mm-hmm. And then really the Cash App, which, which is they've really done a tremendous job marketing uh, to overtake Venmo and really become kind of the default uh, cash app that users use uh, across all platforms uh, with Android and uh, Apple iOS. Well, and it's interesting, too, because there's been some very distinct, Ryan, you know this, distinct pandemic plays. And then there are ones we're wondering, okay, now that as the world starts to reopen, do we start to see them not so much in demand? Is there anybody in particular that you're noticing that? Because it sounds like something like Square, I feel like if somebody wasn't using Square beforehand, you know, and they started because of the pandemic, that's going to stay with us. But is there something out there that you think in particular, you know, might not have such a productive environment post-pandemic? Yeah, I I think that a lot of companies last year uh, did have a bit of a sugar high (laughs) from what happened with COVID, and it is going to be hard to build on those results. A lot of our top holdings were pretty confident, but, you know, we got a reminder last week with Netflix, uh, a lot of the subscription numbers were too aggressive. And, uh, and they fully admitted that uh, they really pulled forward a lot of that subscriber growth from last year. Um, I think Zoom is probably another company that I'd be a little bit cautious here. Um, you know, even a company like Peloton, which has been in the news lately, saw a huge surge in demand last year. Mm-hmm. You know, as you move towards normalization, I mean, those are the ones that I'd, I'd be concerned about uh, not being able to continue to perform like, like we've seen. What about any of the online companies that play into like the housing market or the mortgage market what's your what's your position there because we certainly continue to see people out there buying homes in fact that there's you know low supplies and that's creating a lot of bidding wars but um how do you anticipate that continues to play out here in 2021 it's a tough one Uh, zillow is one of our larger holdings Um, you have extremely low interest rates that look to stay here for a while you have a reopening economy unemployment rates are going to, uh, unemployment, unemployment rates are going to drop. So that all bodes really well for the housing market. That being said, we did have a huge bump through the COVID period with work at home. Uh, you, know, you know, just for a whole host of reasons, we had a, just a booming housing market over the last 12 months. So it's hard. Um, my well, does hard mean you probably, sell? Yeah. Did, you know, because I mean, I'm looking no, at, well, they peaked yeah. kind of in February, mid-February. They're down about 29% since then. Does that mean you continue to have a position, but you've paired it back a lot? No, it's actually, mm-hmm. it's it's one of our, it's paired back a little bit, but it's really still one of our largest positions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the one thing that's happened, the housing inventory has been so tight, even if it cools off a bit, having more inventory in the market will probably keep it more robust. So, you know, something I'd be a little concerned longer term, but not really in the short term. All right. So let's talk about, I think there's a couple of companies in particular um, that you're kind of keen on. MongoDB, maybe not something everybody's heard of, heard about. It's down about 10.5% so far here uh, this year. What's your thinking about this one? 
So uh, it's really an open source database company. Mm -hmm. Um, You can almost think about it similar to like a Red Hat situation with Linux in terms of the operating system. You know, now into databases, you have traditional relational databases like Oracle, IBM, SAP, starting to really lose share to these open source alternatives. And Mongo has done, you know, it's become a favorite of the developer community, cheaper to use, more flexible, and uh, it's showing a lot of momentum. I've been surprised, actually, that this one hasn't gotten more attention from the street, but it's one of our favorites here. All right, so you've been adding to it? Yeah. Okay. Hey, the other one that you like is Voyager Digital, uh, which has been on a tear this year, uh, playing into the crypto world. It's been one of our top performers yeah. over the last few quarters, as you might expect. Um, what really attracted us to it was... So is it uh, just you know catch, yeah. catching on all the other momentum? I mean, it's kind of crazy when you look at how much this particular company has gone up in the last couple of years. Is it just riding the wave, or is there something fundamentally that makes sense here? It's both. Okay. Uh, they had about $150 million in assets under management at the end of September last year. They just crossed about $2.4 billion uh, recently. So. Wow. Uh, it's been a tremendous growth story. The CEO is a senior veteran from E-Trade, over 20 years' experience. They put together an impressive platform. It is competitive. They're a smaller player, but, but they seem to be doing a lot of the right things, and uh, we do think they'll be substantially larger over the next few years. So you're not. Uh, so I'm assuming volatility comes along with a name like this? It does. It's one of our largest positions. It's gotten there through price performance, yeah. but, but we're not inclined to cut it back too much, uh, given the uh, the upside potential. Hey, before you go, I uh, just got about a minute or so here. I mean, what does the market environment look like to you? Are you just in this kind of economic recovery play, and it feels pretty good, at least for the next six months? Yeah, it's kind of what you alluded to with real estate. Obviously, we've come a long way so far. The market tends to discount six to nine months in advance. But given the fundamental backdrop, given the amount of stimulus in the economy, uh, it's very hard to be too negative um, here. That being said, the stock market doesn't track the economy. If it did, our business would be a lot easier. So um, I wouldn't expect the kind of gains we've seen over the last six months. But generally speaking, we're, we're still pretty positive. All right. Certainly sounds it. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much. Love walking through all those names with you. I uh, really appreciate it. Ryan Jacob, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager over at Jacob Asset Management. As I mentioned, his internet fund uh, consistently beating all of its peers over the past five years. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.